Good evening. This is my final lecture in a series on what I have described as the politics of the courtroom. I hope the title uh, of this lecture, The Politics of Judicial Appointment, is not too off-putting. It may sound a little dry, but I hope to persuade you over the, la over the next 50 minutes or so uh, that it's a subject which is not simply of interest to the legal profession. It should engage and concern every single one of us. Notwithstanding our current technologically advanced state, as a society, as a civilization, we've not reached the point where your rights and liabilities can be scientifically determined by an infallible computer. Some possibly look forward to that day in the future, so I certainly don't. But, but whatever that future holds, in the here and now, where you are in dispute with your neighbor, or the state, or with a company you've done business with, it will be a human being, or a series of human beings, who will make a decision either in your favor or against you. The judge deciding your case is likely to have to undertake a variety of tasks. Parliamentary statutes may have to be interpreted. The question of who is telling the truth and who is lying may have to be answered. The meaning of documents may have to be divined. A huge body of complex evidence may have to be assimilated. As I say, these intellectual processes have to be allocated to and carried out by human beings. They will typically involve the application of a series of skills, knowledge of the law, judgment in the widest sense of the term, experience of the world, understanding of human motivations and weaknesses. The 18th century philosopher Montesquieu claimed that judges are, as you can see on the screen, only the mouth that pronounces the words of the law, inanimate beings who can moderate neither its force nor its rigor. That might have been his conception of the true role of the judge. But Montesquieu, who was himself a judge, had inherited his judicial office from his father, and he perhaps felt compelled to understate the discretionary uh, powers of the judiciary. Nonetheless, it's a description very far removed from the role of the modern judge in a common law jurisdiction like uh, the United Kingdom. That, in part, is because the common law is a far more open-textured legal system than the more prescriptive European code-based system. In essence, it expects much more from its judges. You want the person tasked with deciding your case to be adequately qualified, don't you? You want them to be independent and unbiased. You want them to have been appointed, not because of who they know, of how much money they have, not because of the color of their skin or their gender or their sexuality or indeed because of their political leanings. You surely want them to be appointed primarily because of their wisdom, their intelligence and their judgment in that widest sense of the term. That way, surely, they are likely to decide your case correctly and fairly. There's a further reason why we, as a society, not simply as the individual litigants in a particular case, might want judges which have those qualities and who are not chosen by reference to those characteristics that I identified. 
Putting aside the outcome for your case, the judge's decision, if it's a case of substance, is likely to be in writing for everyone to read. It's likely to set out the judge's views on the law. And once published, it will form part of the vast universe of legal pronouncements which may influence judicial decision-making far into the future. You might think that the questions that I've posed so far are trite or, or have an obvious answer. I think we can all accept that the French ancien regime practice of inheritance of judicial office should not be revived. You might also think that the process for the appointment of the people who are going to decide your case and who are going to participate in the forward movement of the law should take place in a realm of quiet and serious inquiry. Surely, you may think, the appointment of should not involve partisanship, public dispute, or any kind of news razzmatazz. Surely, you might think, it should not involve individuals actually putting themselves up for election as judges. Well, let me take you to a world very far removed from our own. Let's start with events which took place 30 years ago. It's 1987, and President Ronald Reagan is in the seventh year of his presidency. A US Supreme Court position has fallen vacant. Under the US Constitution, appointments to the Supreme Court are made by presidential nomination, but can only be confirmed with the consent of the US Senate. Now, Reagan nominated a man called Robert Bork, and here we can see him possibly in the Oval Office, but somewhere in the White House, with the President. Bork had been the Solicitor General of the United States between 1973 and 1977, appointed by President Nixon. In that capacity, he had faithfully uh, uh, followed Nixon's infamous and controversial order to fire the special prosecutor who was investigating the Watergate scandal, what became known as the Saturday Night Massacre. Ten years earlier, Bork had written an article in which he opposed the Civil Rights Acts that were then being passed. And one of his arguments was that forbidding restaurant owners and hotel owners from discriminating against black people would infringe their liberty to serve whoever they wanted. Since 1982, Bork had been a judge of the US Court of Appeals, uh, where he'd given some deeply conservative rulings. And in proposing him, Reagan made no effort at all to disguise the political character of Bork's nomination. He openly promoted him as a man who could create a conservative majority in the US Supreme Court. The liberal senator, Ted Kennedy, immediately responded to Reagan's nomination with the following impassioned speech, and I quote uh, from some part of it. Robert Bort's America is a land in which women would be forced into back-alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids. Schoolchildren could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists could be censored at the whim of the government. And the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of the millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of the individual rights that are the heart of our democracy. 
strong stuff from Senator Kennedy uh, about a judicial nominee, of course. In the weeks following Bork's nomination, the legal theorist Ronald Dworkin wrote lengthy pieces in the New York Review of Books, critically analyzing Bork's judicial philosophy. The Hollywood actor Gregory Peck narrated a television advertisement, advertisement funded by liberal political action groups which condemned Bork as an extremist. As a counter to Bork's views on privacy rights, his judicial views on privacy rights, broadly speaking, he was against them, Bork's video rental history, you'll all remember videos, was leaked. It revealed nothing more than a a penchant for the works of the Marx Brothers and Alfred Hitchcock. The Senate Judiciary Committee, which was then presided over by a certain Joe Biden, convened a hearing to look into Bork's nomination, which lasted nearly three weeks. It was televised live. It involved intense questioning of, Bork's, of Bork over his views and over a whole range of subjects, both political and legal. During the interrogation, that in essence was what it was, Bork was totally candid about his view that in interpreting the United States Constitution, the Supreme Court should simply be guided by the intent of the 18th century framers of that document, and nothing more. Judges, he said, should not be inventing new rights, such as the rights of gay people not to be discriminated against, a point he was very particular about during the hearings. When the nomination was eventually debated by the Senate, to the profound surprise of almost everyone, including Professor Dworkin, it was rejected by 58 votes to 42, a pretty rare occurrence in US history. Bork resigned his existing judicial position and his name entered the dictionary as a verb. To balk, to obstruct someone from acquiring public office on ideological grounds. Now, the successful agitation of a liberal wing uh, uh, against Bork's nomination was responded to with real indignation by conservatives from across uh, uh, the spectrum who accused the so-called liberal cabal of organizing a, quotes, lynch mob of special interests. The Wall Street Journal took a, an especially extreme position, alleging that Bork's rejection had actually caused a stock market fall, and they issued a dark warning to the liberals that they would pay for their victory. Now, Robert Bork's experience was no flash in the pan. Some commentators have seen it as a significant step on the road towards the current divisions in American political culture and the end of civil discourse in public life, which has been so much talked about of late uh, uh, in America. Since then, you won't be surprised to hear the politics of American Supreme Court, Supreme Court nominations and appointments has only become more fractious. Just four years after Robert Bork was, well, balked, the world was subjected to the gruesome details of Clarence Thomas's alleged success, sexual harassment of Professor 
Anita Hill. And here we have a photograph, a famous photograph of Professor Hill uh, giving evidence to the Senate Judiciary Committee and uh, a badge that was uh, uh, worn by a lot of people at the time, uh, uh, I believe, Anita Hill. Um, you'll remember that Thomas had been nominated by President Bush, I think, in 1991, and for over 10 days, Thomas, Hill, and a variety, variety of other witnesses were questioned on the precise nature of their relationship. The evidence that was given made for, frankly, lurid viewing. And I'm not going to uh, recount some of the more extraordinary things that were said during uh, those hearings. This time, however, Thomas, the Republican nominee, was appointed. But again, it was close. 52 votes on the, in the Senate against 48 against. Now, attempts to stymie Supreme Court presidential nominations have not all been by Democrats. We can scroll forward uh, uh, a few years to 2016, beginning of 2016, after the death of Antonin Scalia, a deeply conservative Supreme Court judge. President Obama nominates Merrick Garland to replace him. With an election due in November of that year, the Republican-dominated Senate simply refused to consider the nomination, hoping for a Republican victory later in the year, which would allow the incoming president to nominate a sound conservative instead. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said of this refusal that it was, and I quote, the most consequential decision I've ever made in my entire public career. And as uh, the legal theorist Frederick Wilmot Smith writing in the London Review, of Books last, London Review of Books last year, noted that was no empty boast by Senator McConnell. In one poll alone, 82% of Americans said that the constitution of the Supreme Court had been an important factor in their decision on how to vote at presidential elections. Indeed, many will see one of the most long-lasting legacies of President Trump's term in office as the fact that he nominated, during his four years, three youngish conservative judges whose influence on public affairs will continue for decades. The third of those nominations, that of Amy Coney Barrett, was confirmed just before Trump's presidential defeat uh, uh, at the end of 2020. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg died only 46 days before the 2020 election. President Trump ha had no compunction at all about pushing through his own nominee in super quick time. You won't be surprised that the president didn't feel constrained by the arguments that have been put forward so powerfully by the Republican senators in 2016 that it was in principle wrong for a presidential nomination to be confirmed in the last year of a presidency. Now, it'll be evident that the appointment of US Supreme Court judges is political with a capital P. It is political in tooth and claw. To a British observer, it is both fascinating, possibly in the way that the idea of gladiatorial combat in the Colosseum 
is fascinating and also rather disturbing. We don't think of judges as nakedly political figures, brazenly appointed for political reasons to further the philosophies of those who nominated them or appointed them. In one sense, it's obvious why these appointments can be so fraught with controversy. The powers of the Supreme Court are vast. They can strike down legis legislation both at state and federal level. They can thereby thwart the will of the elected legis legislature and indeed the elected president. And many see the fate of the United States, both well, culturally, socially, even economically, as entwined in the collective identity of the nine justices who make up the bench. Now, sometimes judges appointed as putative conservatives or liberals change direction on the bench uh, uh, in the US Supreme Court. Famously, Earl Warren, who was nominated by the Republican President Eisenhower, became one of the leading voices of the judicial civil rights crusades of the 1950s and 60s. President Eisenhower, speaking of his chief justice, would later uh, uh, lament that his nomination of Earl Warren was the biggest damn fool mistake I've ever made. Still, it's possible, well, more than possible, to talk of the Supreme Court at any given time being, di being divided, say, 5-4 or 6-3 in favour of the conservative or the liberal wings. And it's undoubtedly the case that appointments have increasingly been of justices of a more doctrinaire bent, possibly to prevent future backsliding such as that according to President Eisenhower, of Chief Justice Warren. Certainly, it's unlikely that the justices appointed by President Trump between 2016 and 2020 will emulate Earl Warren. To a British onlooker, the idea that judicial decision can turn so decisively on political viewpoint runs counter to our notions of law as something which sits even-handedly above the bear, pick, bear pit of political controversy. The other befuddling aspect of it is the sheer contingency of the makeup of the Supreme Court and therefore, some would say, the fate of America. Whether a majority in favour of a particular viewpoint can be achieved or not, can turn on the fortuity of ill health and death. If Justice Ginsburg had died just a few weeks later than she did, we'd now have President Biden's nomination as a justice rather than the conservative Amy Coney Barrett. The political quality of American judicial appointment is certainly not confined to the Supreme Court. The other aspect of the American system of judicial appointment that I should note is that in many American states, the state judiciary is elected. Yes, elected by popular vote. Popular ele election in America was originally introduced in the 19th century for the, best, for the best of motives, in order to prevent 
the risk of state governors appointing political allies or bestowing patronage on their friends or people they uh, wanted to influence. It's been justified on the grounds that it provides a direct relationship between the people and the justice system. But let me make it clear. Election is not confined to judges simply presenting themselves to the people on the basis of their judicial or legal record. Many states permit partisan elections, i.e. judges running on Democrat or Republican tickets. And judicial election campaigns can involve very large sums of money. Candidates often receiving funds from external business interests or pressure groups. And it won't surprise you to learn that a recent study has revealed that, statistically speaking in broad terms, the more campaign contributions from business interests a, su a successful judicial candidate receives, the more likely they were to vote for business litigants appearing before them in court. Now, I want to cross the Atlantic now. I think it's safe to say that judicial election is an idea which has really no prospect of adoption in this country. Democracy is, of course, a good thing, but I seriously question whether the voting public is in any position to make an informed choice on judicial appointment. Nor, surely, do we want judges who might feel beholden to particular external interest groups. It was once said, insecurity of tenure is fatal to a proper judicial habit of mind. And what more insecure tenure can there be than the tenure which uh, uh, requires the judge to remember that in four years' time or however many years' time, he or she has to put themselves back up for re-election. But before we get too comfortable in thinking we in this country would never go about things in such a strange way, let me embark on a short history lesson. Eighty years ago, the famous uh, uh, political philosopher Harold Lasky wrote an essay on the technique of judicial selection. Through his researches, he discovered that in the period between 1832 and 1906, of the 139 judges who, appoint, who were appointed to the High Court bench of England and Wales, 80, I repeat, 80, had been sitting MPs at the moment of their appointment, and another 11 had previously stood as parliamentary candidates. There was a convention, only broken really after the Second World War, that the solicitor and attorney generals, i.e. the the government law officers, had an expectation of appointment to the highest judicial offices uh, if they became vacant at the moment of, their, of them being solicitor or attorney general. Indeed, it was usual for the attorney general to bag the Lord Chief Justiceship, highest judicial office in the land, if it was available at the time he or she was the attorney general. In fact, here at that time. So, in 1922, a man called Gordon Hewitt, a Liberal MP and the Attorney General between 1919 and 1922, 
was appointed without one iota of prior judicial experience to become the Lord Chief Justice within two, and he became that within two days of resigning his parliamentary seat and the eternal attorney generalship. And we can see Lord Chief Justice Hewitt on, on the left. He remained the LCJ for another 18 years, apparently terrorising the lawyers who appeared in front of him and has been generally regarded since as the worst Lord Chief Justice ever appointed in the history of this country. In essence, in the 19th and early 20th century, appointments to the judiciary in this country, and remember, judges in those days were much better paid, comparatively speaking, than they are now, was part of the armory of governmental patronage. Undoubtedly, some brilliant judges were appointed under this system. But let us not pride ourselves that the judiciary of the 19th and 20th century was an unblemished meritocracy. A man called Arthur Kekovich stood unsuccessfully as a Conservative candidate in 1880 and 1885. Having been appointed a Queen's Counsel in 1877, his practice dwindled, and I here quote from his obituary, to very modest proportions. Nonetheless, in 1886, after his second unsuccessful attempt at a constituency, he was appointed by the then by the then Conservative Lord Chancellor, Lord Halsbury, to the High Court bench. It was said of Mr Justice Kekowich that in his court no case was certain and no case hopeless. It was recorded, possibly apocryphally, that his family would hold a day of rejoicing on the rare occasions that one of his judgments was upheld in the Court of Appeal. Now, the selection of judges on political grounds ebbed away in the 20th century and was replaced by what one might describe as the tap-on-the-shoulder form of selection. Appointment lay in the hands of the Lord Chancellor, of course at the time a member of the government as well as the head of the judiciary, and was very heavily influenced uh, by the views of the sitting uh, uh, judges of the time. Its processes were opaque and in the main involved the Lord Chancellor's department reaching out discreetly to those who were perceived to be suitable candidates. For much of the 20th century, the makeup of the English, uh, the British judiciary, uh, could be described as a form of auto-reproduction. Public school-educated and upper-middle-class men sitting on the bench naturally saw in similar men who appeared as counsel in their courts ideal future candidates for for political office, for judicial office. Earlier this year, a distinguished judge called Dame Margaret Booth died. When I wrote her obituary for the Times, I discovered that on her appointment in 1979, she was only the third High Court judge to be appointed to the English and Welsh bench, the third female High Court judge. When Brenda Hale was appointed as a High Court judge in 1994, she was only the 10th woman judge to be appointed to the High Court. Now, that system changed with the advent of the Constitutional Reform Act of 2005. I'll say at once 
that the current mechanism for appointing judges uh, in this country certainly has none of the excitements of American Supreme Court nominations or judicial elections. The 2005 Act created a Judicial Appointments Commission made up of legal and non-legal members. As regards nomination to the UK Supreme Court, the Act provides for a separate commission. But the key elements of the new system are the same. Selection for appointments to the senior judiciary has become standardised. It is by formal application uh, after a process of advertising. Candidates are interviewed and references have to be provided. The Lord Chancellor now has only a very, very limited role in the process. Apart from certain requirements about having been a judge or a lawyer from a minimum period of time, the 2005 Act is refreshingly simple as to the criterion for appointment to any level of judiciary. The Act simply says this, selection must be solely on merit. Of course, in that simple word merit, there is a vast amount of meaning and potential debate. But for the time being, let me simply use this as the opportunity for repeating a classic American anecdote about another Republican nominee to the Supreme Court. In 1970, President Nixon proposed a judge called Harold Carswell. And there we can see him. Carswell had, in the eyes of most, two distinguishing characteristics, racism and mediocrity. He had once stood for political election, pledging himself to maintaining segregation and to, and to use his own words, white supremacy. Whenever his decisions were appealed, they were generally reversed. And when Senator George McGovern put forward these characteristics as surely disqualifying him for appointment to the Supreme Court, a Republican senator from Nebraska responded, even if he were mediocre, there are a lot of mediocre judges and people and lawyers. They aren't, they're entitled to a little representation, aren't they? And a little chance. You won't be surprised to hear that Judge Carswell's uh, 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 nomination uh, was not successful. Now, the process of judicial appointment to the United Kingdom Supreme Court is as low-key as uh, uh, it is in the United States public. The most recent UK Supreme Court appointment was announced last month, Lady Rose of Colmworth. Her appointment went almost unnoticed by anyone apart from lawyers. And, and how many non-lawyers amongst you in, and in this country as a whole can name any members of the current UK Supreme Court? I suspect very few, and I don't blame you. There have been, of course, some notable exceptions to that over the years. We can think about Lord Denning from an earlier generation, and more recently we can think of Lady Hale or Lord Sumption, who, for varying reasons, have become national figures. But apart from those examples, uh, uh, otherwise Supreme Court judges, and indeed judges generally, retain in this country a very low profile. And let me test this point a little further. Look up the Wikipedia pages of any current or former US Supreme Court justice, and you'll find an immensely lengthy article setting out uh, uh, their in-depth life story and an analysis of 
many of their rulings and its constitutional implications and what it shows about their political leanings. Flick over on your Wikipedia page to a current uh, UK Supreme Court judge or indeed a Court of Appeal judge and what do you find? You'll find possibly three or four paragraphs telling you where they went to school, where they went to university, when they were appointed to their success, successive judicial positions, and a short list of some of their more notable decisions. To the world at large, the British judiciary uh, are essentially, essentially anonymous people. They appear to have no particular worldview which shapes their decision-making. They put forward no manifesto to secure appointment. But nobody seriously doubts that they've been appointed by reference and solely by reference to that elusive concept but meaningful concept of merit that I've mentioned. This disparity in the public image, images of the American and the British judges is of course not simply a matter of cultural difference. As I've mentioned, US Supreme Court judges as guardians of the Constitution have momentous powers to alter the course of American political life and social life. Here, on the other hand, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty means that the powers of the UK judiciary, even of its Supreme Court, are very considerably narrower. Put aside what you've read in the newspapers about the UK Supreme Court being overweening. Compared to the US Supreme Court, it has very few powers. There's no British equivalent uh, uh, to the US decisions in Roe and Wade or Brown and the, and the Board of Education. And when the case for decision is whether the national school system should continue to be segregated along racial lines, as of course that was the question in Brown, or whether the state can criminalise abortion, Roe and Wade, then I suppose the political views of the judges deciding it are of some real potential interest. I think most people on this side of the Atlantic would applaud this difference between the US and the UK judges, and I certainly do. The identity of the judges who decide cases in the United Kingdom is generally speaking a matter of indifference to the public at large. When some momentous decision is handed down in this country, and I put aside, of course, the exception of the Brexit cases, nobody starts beavering into the background of the judges who made it. The decision has simply been made by a generic judge, and by saying that I don't mean any disrespect to them, quite the reverse. Not by an individual whose, whose personality traits or lineaments are defined in the public mind. That's one of the reasons why our judges have traditionally been gowned and wicked. It is to depersonalise them, to turn them into avatars of the law rather than a series of distinct personalities. And surely it is that very anonymity, that very genericness, which speaks to the broad success historically and to this day of our system. The, the apolitical and humdrum manner of appointment of judges feeds into our perception of them. And I think it also affects the way judges see 
and comport themselves. With very few exceptions, UK judges are reticent figures, shunning publicity, imbued with a very profound sense of public service. They don't grandstand, they don't draw attention to themselves, and indeed, in the tone and style of their written legal judgments, one finds a remarkable homogeneity, which is not to say that English judgments or British judgments are not uniformly written in excellent language. But it's generally difficult to tell one judicial voice from another. And again, I think that's a good thing. And let's compare it to the US situation. In one of Justice Ginsburg's most famous dissenting judgments, in the case of Shelby County and Holder, she attacked the majority decision to strike down parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, a key piece of uh, civil rights legislation. And what does she say? To, just to draw a couple of sentences from her dissenting judgment. The sad irony of today's decision, that's of the majority decision, lies in its utter failure to grasp why the VRA has proven effective. In my judgment, the court errs egregiously by overriding Congress's decision. I suppose when you've been through the mill of nomination to the US Supreme Court, you may feel somewhat less inhibited in your choice of language on the bench. But no English judge, however strongly they disagreed with the view of the majority in the Court of Appeal or uh, uh, the Supreme Court, would ever use language like that, I can assure you. Now, the apolitical process of judicial appointment in this country not only affects the culture of judging, but I think it also means that in the main, judicial decisions command broad public acceptance. Judges are perceived, as I say, by and large, as being apolitical creatures. Lady Hale herself once said that she didn't actually know the political leanings of most of her colleagues on the Supreme Court. I think that's a wonderful thing. And, and this is, as I say, not only a good thing, but I think it's a significant ingredient, this perceived apoliticality, in the broad consensus culture that this country has long enjoyed, and which is perhaps um, uh, uh, being undermined at the moment, uh, but is considerably more, the consensus, uh, culturally speaking and socially speaking in this country, is considerably greater uh, than that in the, than in the US, of course. Um, there is, of course, one important counter-narrative to what I've said. As we all know, the decisions in the Gina Miller Brexit cases over the last two or three years uh, brought the identity of judges and their supposed political tendencies to the fore. It led to the widely reported remarks of the then Attorney General in the wake of the prorogation decision in late 2019 that there was a case, as he put it, for vetting of Supreme Court judges by parliamentarians. And former Conservative leader Ian Duncan Smith was reported as saying, it raises again the question, it being those decisions, uh, of who judges the judges. And more and more people are, asked, are beginning to ask, with some legitimacy, said Duncan Smith, whether it might be time to start holding hearings as they do in America, to find out what their political views are and what we can expect. We need to know more about these people. 
Speaking for myself, I very much hope that that kind of remark was the product of a particular moment in British constitutional history. What Anurin Bevan once famously described as an emotional spasm. I believe that the last thing we need to know uh, more about is about our judges. The more we know about them, the less we will respect their judgments. As I've tried to, to demonstrate, the, cohesive, the co cohesiveness of the British polity, relatively speaking, is in large part the result of our collective belief and respect for the generic, de-individualized nature of British justice. Still, there are three aspects of judicial appointment which I think deserve attention and which are political with a lowercase p in the sense of that word that I've tried to develop over the course of this lecture series. The first is one which has received remarkably little attention, and that is that it's become an unexamined assumption, and it's become an unexamined assumption of the way we do things in this country. The traditional British view of judges is that they should be people who, before they go to the bench, have spent half a lifetime actually practicing law. We, we think of our judges as necessarily middle-aged. Judgment comes with experience of the world, we think. And this carries through to the Supreme Court. It's traditionally been the view that to become a Supreme Court judge, you need to spend years toiling in the lower courts. In delivering a lecture on the selection of judges for the highest court a few years ago. Sir Sidney Kentridge suggested that a Supreme Court judge, and I quote, with neither prior judicial experience nor long years in practice, would be at a considerable and possibly in incurable disadvantage. Besides, he continued, judicial qualities are best assessed through performance on the bench in the lower courts. Now, European countries take a different view. Most civil law jurisdictions have a career judiciary. Being a judge is a profession just like any other, and you train for it just as you train to become a dentist or an engineer. For instance, most French judges have spent some years being educated in the business of judging, and they then start their careers in their late 20s or so and progress up the judicial career ladder. In France, very few lawyers in private practice go on to become judges. There are essentially two career paths, judge, lawyer, and private practice, and they very rarely cross over. And of course, compare that to England, where becoming a judge is generally seen as the culmination of long years uh, in the trenches of legal practice. Now, it's not for me to say whether the French system is a good or a bad thing. But it's certainly antithetical to British notions of judging, and I think possibly takes us to the heart of the supposed difference between Anglo-Saxon empiricism and continental rationalism. In fact, if we remember back to Montesquieu's description of the process of judging, it has some validity when we think about the continental model. Being a judge in on the continent is on the whole a more technocratic activity. I, I don't intend to sound jingoistic if I say that British judges, British judges enjoy far higher status than their European counterparts within their own country. It's right to note 
that there have been changes to this paradigm uh, uh, in this country in recent years. Recent judicial appointments in England have to an extent broken the traditional pattern of the barrister after 25 years or so of practice being appointed to the High Court or the County Court bench. So solicitors are far more frequently appointed to the bench now than they ever were. And so are lawyers who've not been in private practice at all. Last year, Rowena Collins-Rice was appointed to the High Court after having spent 25 years as a government lawyer, latterly as a Director General uh, uh, of the, uh, I'm sorry, the Director General of the Attorney General's office. I've already mentioned Lady Rose, the most recent Supreme Court judge, judge, judge appointment. She was appointed to the High Court bench after having been standing counsel to the Director General of Fair Trading and then chair of the Competition Appeal Tribunal. The other appointment to the Supreme Court recently was Lord Burroughs, who we can, see, we can see. As Andrew Burroughs, he was an eminent professor of law at Oxford University. He was the first person ever to be appointed to the Supreme Court directly from academia. And unlike Lady Rose, Lord Burroughs had never even been a full-time High Court or Court of Appeal judge. I should say his appointment was universally welcomed. The next unexamined assumption that I wanted to mention about British judging is tenure. Appointment to the judiciary is an appointment for life, unless you become incapacitated, uh, incapacitated or you commit some misdemeanor. When I say for life, I should, of course, say until you're 70, the age of ju judicial senility, as it is sometimes colloquially described. This principle has been a fundamental part, part of the British Constitution since 1701 with the Act of Settlement, a response to the rather high-handed approach um, of the Stuart monarchy, monarchs to judicial tenure. As we've seen, most American judges are elected for a term of years. Like a politician, they have to go back to their electorate and make their case for reappointment. Now, many Americans would say that's a good thing. It keeps judges on their toes. But I think to most British people, it is anathema. Experience shows that appointment for life does not breed complacency amongst the British judiciary. Rather, it cements that fundamental characteristic of the British judge, independence from the executive and the legislature. A judge can rule against the government in the confident knowledge that he or she is absolutely safe from sanction. Now, that is not the case in many countries in this world. Just two weeks ago, to take one example, the new president of El Salvador, elected on a supposed mandate to clean up the house, as he put it, sacked all five members of that country's Supreme Court for uh, uh, supposedly standing in the way of the will of the people. Now, there have been occasional dissents from the view that a, judge, a judge's appointment should be for life. Dr. Johnson, who of course said a lot of things about lawyers and judges, regretted uh, the revocation of the 17th century rule um, that a judge had to be reappointed on the accession of a new monarch, reasoning that, and I quote, a judge may become corrupt 
A judge may become froward, sort of contrary, with age. Judges may grow unfit for office in many ways. It was desirable that there should be a possibility of being delivered from him by uh, uh, a, new, a new king. Now, Lord Bingham, writing in his famous book, The Rule of Law, said that um, at a time when the judges could continue to serve indefinitely, and in the 18th century, life did mean life. You carry on till you dropped. Um, then Dr. Johnson's concern was perhaps understandable. But Bingham concluded, on this point, exceptionally, history has disagreed with Dr. Johnson. Now, the final issue which I wanted to come to, and which certainly is no longer an unexamined assumption of British judging, is the question of judicial diversity. As I've mentioned, the Constitutional Reform Act 2005, which governs judicial appointments now, essentially sets a single criterion for judicial appointment. I repeat, merit. There are two other provisions in the Act, however, which require mention. The first, which has been described as the tiebreaker clause, provides that where two persons are of equal merit, one of them may be preferred over the other for, I quote, the purpose of increasing diversity. The second provision is that in performing its, in, its functions, the Judicial Appointment Commission, and I quote again, must have regard for the need to encourage diversity in the range of persons available for selection for appointments. So encourage diversity in the pool of candidates, but that is expressly subject to the sole criterion of merit on which judges can be appointed. Now, in the 15 or so years since the, the Act came into force, the judiciary has undoubtedly become more diverse, both in gender and race terms. But some have questioned the pace of change. In 2020, so last year, roughly 32% of the judiciary of England and Wales were women, in con contrast to 51% of the overall population. 7% of the judiciary are BAME, compared with 12% of the population. It's fair to say that as you go further up the judicial hierarchy, these percentages get smaller. In a much-discussed lecture given a few years ago, Lord Sumption examined the reasons for the relatively slow progress towards a position where the makeup of the judiciary reflected more precisely the makeup of the population. In summary, Sumption identified the fact that it is only when the underlying pool of potential applicants reflect, reflected more properly the underlying demographics of the nation that full equality would be reached. The legal profession has traditionally been a male-dominated one, and it's upper, in its upper reaches still is. As that gradually changes, as it will, so will the makeup of the judiciary. Sumption, in his lecture, went on to examine whether a swifter rate of change could or should be affected by some form of positive discrimination. His considered view was that that would be a retrograde step. In his opinion, the single and sole criterion of merit should be retained. That would continue to mean that in the short term, more white males would be appointed, although that imbalance would diminish over time. This was not because, of course, that women or people from 
ethnic minorities are intrinsically less meritorious, but because for historical and social reasons, which can only be ironed out over time, there are, at present, fewer candidates uh, uh, compared to white males. As Sumption put it, and I quote, without some kind of positive discrimination, the judiciary is never going to be significantly more diverse than the pool from which it is drawn. Now, I'm not going to offer a view on whether the pace of change should be increased by some form of legislated positive discrimination. One dives into very deep waters uh, when doing so. But what we can do, I think, is look to another country which did legislate in that direction. When South Africa's first democratic election took place on the 27th of April 1994, its judiciary reflected the following race and gender balance. Of the 165 high court and above judges, 160 were white men, three were black men, two were white women. There were no black female judges. Clearly, with the birth of a new nation, something had to be done as a matter of urgency to reverse that imbalance. So section 1742 of the South African Constitution, the post-apartheid constitution, expressly provided and still provides as follows. The need for the judiciary to, broadly, to reflect broadly the racial and gender composition of South Africa must be considered, must be considered, when judicial officers are appointed. Now, 25 years on, the pendulum has swung pretty decisively. Now, only 35% of, of, of South African judges are white. Not a single member of the country's 11 constitutional court judges is white, nor are any of the heads of the nine provincial high courts. Now, a few weeks ago, Tony Leon, the former head of the Democratic Alliance, one of the significant opposition parties, if not the most significant opposition party in South Africa, wrote an article in which he identified a number of lawyers and judges, all white, and of exceptional ability, who had been denied judicial appointment in South Africa, or higher judicial appointment, over the last few years. In his um, typically rebarbative um, and straightforward way, he wrote as follows. Left-wing credentials, academic excellence, implacable opposition to apartheid, and banishment under its fist, legal acumen and genuine commitment to constitutionalism, this is a reference to the characteristics of, the, of those white lawyers, have in each of these cases been insufficient to overcome the birth defect of being white in a country infected, as he put it, with, right, with race essentialism, which now determines every aspect of the public appointments process. Now, appointment to the higher judiciary in South Africa is a public process. A judicial commission interviews each candidate over a period of hours in televised sessions. You can watch them. Three weeks ago, one of the lawyers referred to by Tony Leon in his article, a judge called David Unterhalter, was interviewed for a position on the, Supreme, on the Constitutional Court, he'd applied. Um, Unterhalter is obviously a figure in the top rank of legal minds. He himself argued many cases before the Constitutional Court when he was at the bar. He'd been a professor of law uh, uh, at one of 
South Africa's most eminent universities. He'd spent eight years as a member of the appeal body of the World Trade Organization. Now, you can actually watch Unterhalter's interview before the Judicial Appointments Commission, Judicial, Judicial Services Commission as it's known, on YouTube. And when you watch it, it's fair to say one can detect an undercurrent of antagonism directed against this judge, uh, an applicant for the Constitutional Court. The members of the commission repeatedly suggested to him that by applying for this position, he was potentially denying preferment to black candidates whose less privileged background necessarily meant that they could not present, or potentially meant, that they could not present a CV as well-stocked as Unterhalter's. One commissioner suggested that he should even pull back from making the application, or should, should, should resile from his application. Another referred to the fact that he had a degree from Trinity College, Cambridge, and said that the fact of that degree was an aspect of his, quotes, white privilege. His Unterhalter's former membership of the, of the Jewish Board of Deputies was itself the subject of intense questioning, as were his views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. His application was not successful, nor was that of a woman judge of Indian heritage called Judge Pillay. The two successful candidates were both black. Now, it's easy to respond to Unterhalter's interview with mixed feelings. On the one hand, here is an eminently qualified man being held back for a characteristic he cannot help, his whiteness. But there is another interpretation which deserves consideration. Through no fault of his own, Unterhalter's background, his, his white privilege, if you will, and he was, in his early life, was spent under apartheid. He'd been undoubtedly assisted by it in achieving a highly successful career. It was a career that the black candidates may not have had the opportunity to enjoy, equally through no fault of their own. It's right to say that the concept of merit isn't simply a question of innate ability. It feeds off the opportunities given to you by your circumstances. Perhaps, perhaps, fairness and the desideratum of a bench, which is reflective of a, reflective of a, of a country's people and population, should trump merit in, in, understood in that particular way. But if they do, will, it might be asked, it leads to a court whose judgments are less respected or maybe less respected or maybe uh, uh, diminished in its inability to draw on the talents of people like Judge Unterhalter. In that interview, as I say, which you can see on YouTube, it struck me that some of the really difficult arguments, both for and against positive discrimination, are, are not being posed abstractly, but are being played out in concrete terms. And the really difficult questions and the arguments for and against are really intensely exposed to scrutiny. Whether the decision to reject Judge Unterhalter's application was right or wrong, I think we can draw one firm conclusion. Uh, and it's a conclusion, perhaps a rather diminuendo one, which I'm going to end on. A public judicial selection process 
whether on the American or the South African model, can potentially create division and recrimination. Certainly, Unterhalter's failure to get onto the Constitutional Court bench created an enormous amount of press coverage and a lot of uh, uh, agitation for and against. We may talk about the vital importance of justice being carried out in public, but let's not, I say, in this country, make the error of extending that principle to the business of selecting those who are going to sit in those public courts. Sometimes things work better behind closed doors. Thank you very much. Professor Grant, thank you very much for a really interesting lecture this evening. Um, we do have a few questions from the online audience. We won't be able to get to all of them, but I will try to address some of them to um, Professor Grant. So the first one is, since the UK Supreme Court justices are not subject to selection by the JAC, do you think that the selection process should be changed? It could be argued that they are political appointments, and this is what your lecture was addressing. The, the, it's right to say that the Supreme Court judges are not... Um, appointed by the JAC, but they are appointed by a kind of ad hoc commission which is made up of um, lawyers and non-lawyers and which is bound to apply the same uh, criterion of merit. And there are two sections of the Act or two sets of sections of the Act. One set of sections relates to um, Supreme Court uh, appointments and the other relates to all other all other appointments. But you still have in both sets of sets of sections the central question of merit as being the the the, the dominant and sole criterion for for uh, uh, appointment in both. It's fair to say that the the Lord Chancellor does have a final the final say. But I think it, it's it's right that the the Lord Chancellor has a power of veto not a power of positively saying, well, I want that person rather than the person you've proposed to me. It's also right to say that the Lord Chancellor uh, ha has only ever exercised that power of veto since 2005 on one occasion. And that was when Jack Straw was offered a particular individual judge, who I won't name, although it's a public fact, um, to be the head of a particular division. And Jack Straw said, actually... I, from what I've heard, I'm not sure this is the right person to be the head of that um, division. And it went back to the JAC, who reconsidered the question. And then they put forward the same person again. And Straw, who was then the Lord Chancellor, basically felt obliged to accept their second recommendation of the same individual. Um, he basically felt that if he pushed back a second time it might create a real rupture between the Lord Chancellor and the, and the judges. And that, I think it's fair to say that a lot of academics have concluded that, the, the, that although the Lord Chancellor technically has a power of refusal, it is a power which it's very difficult for the Lord Chancellor to exercise and, as I say, has never done so successfully. Um, I think that's probably gone beyond the question, but so, so be it. Thank you. Um, given the 2019 judgment on the prorogation of Parliament, surely the Supreme Court cannot be entirely apolitical. So what is the relevance of this for appointments? Well, that's a, a, 
a question which is um, at the heart of the, uh, the, the current debates. I, um, I, personally take, I personally find myself in, um, in agreement, and it's always a good thing to be in agreement with Lord Sumption on these questions. Lord Sumption, of course, gave a very famous um, and extremely interesting series of lectures, the Reith Lectures, a couple of years ago, where one of his central theses, perhaps his central thesis, was that politics was uh, uh, creeping into uh, the law in a way which was retrograde. Was retrograde. However, and those, those lectures were given before the, the um, prorogation decision. But when the prorogation decision came out right at the end of 2019, and when, of course, there was a substantial furore about it and a lot of political commentators raised the very, the, that question, are our judges political? Um, and hence gave rise to the series of questions, which I, some of which I've made reference to. We need, do we need to know more about these people? One of the people who stood up and said, no, the decision is entirely doctrinally correct, was perhaps the very man that you'd have thought would have been leading the charge, Lord Sumption. Lord Sumption, who's obviously a man of deep intellectual honesty, putting aside many of his other qualities, um, was not going to jump on a bandwagon when he felt, having read the judgment, that it was in fact not a political judgment. It was a judgment that the court, you can agree or disagree with it, they had to confront a particular issue. And let me just say this. One of the central attacks that has been made on judicial uh, uh, decision-making over the last 10 or 15 years has been that judges have been infringing the central tenet of the British Constitution, which is parliamentary sovereignty. And undoubtedly, it is the central tenet of the British Constitution. Now, the prorogation decision, one might say, what, what, all it's doing is upholding parliamentary sovereignty. That's what it was doing. Um, I, for one, don't think it was a political decision. Obviously, it involved political questions, but necessarily, the courts just had to, were forced to deal with them. I don't believe that the outcome was dictated by the political thinking of the judge, of the justices. And if you look at the 11 justices who sat, I'm sure that they come, in terms of their own voting habits or patterns, from the whole gamut of, of the political spectrum. But they all came to the same conclusion about a question of law, as I believe it was. Again, that's a very long answer. Possibly not a satisfactory one. There were a few questions about diversity, most of which were answered by the final section of your, yeah. your lecture. But there is one question here. Um, why is it that diversity is so often only seen in terms of racial or gender matters? Can there never be a, a, a merit appointment for the lower classes, for instance? That's an exceptionally, that's an exceptionally good question. Um, I, I, I hope the... the the answer to that lies in the um, appointment to the, to the bar and to the solicitor's profession um, and in, in, in the real efforts. I and mean, I'm not how successful they have been um, is open to question. Um, but the real efforts, which I know have been made by um, the bar and all, all aspects of the legal profession to encourage applications 
from a much wider uh, uh, spectrum of the, of the population than has traditionally been, been the case. Um, I, don't th I don't think it can be done except, and, and I accept that, the, the, that this answer therefore means it is going to be a, a slow, gradual process, um, as Sumption put it. The judiciary can only reflect not the population, but the pool of applicants for the judiciary. So the key thing is to make sure that the pool of applicants reflects the population. And the only way to, make, to ensure that the pool of applicants reflects the population is in terms of who's actually becoming a, a lawyer. Now, that's a project. Uh, that's a generational project, um, which I think is, is ongoing and I think has been... Look at the makeup of the British, the English bar, to take an example now and compare it to 30 years ago, and I think there's been progress. I think there's, and, and also, of course, the, 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 the better universities, the universities where the bar traditionally looks at, themselves have, to have a part to play. And of course, if one goes back 30 years, Oxbridge was, take, was, was taking on far too many public school educated people, I should say I'm not public school educated, I'm not Oxbridge educated, um, taking far too many uh, 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 public school educated uh, students on and that's changing radically and that will also play a part. And I, the reason it will play a part is because still if you look at the top barristers chambers, a very substantial percentage of the members of those chambers are Oxbridge educated. Thank you, and thank you very much for your lecture this evening and for your generosity in addressing these questions. It really is uh, a very interesting lecture. Thanks, Claire. Um, thank you to the audience as well for attending this evening, and may I encourage you to return tomorrow. We have two very good lectures tomorrow, the first at uh, 1 o'clock on artificial intelligence and humor. And at six o'clock, we have Professor Alex Edmonds speaking on how companies profit from our mistakes. So please do join us. Thank you.